Good morning. Oh, a little too close. Don't want to get too close, right? Uh, as Jordan said, my name is Jason. Uh, if you don't know who I am and you don't see me very often, that's because I spend most of my time down the hill in the valley at the Chilliwack campus. And then every once in a while, Pastor Jonathan wants a break. So he says, okay, fine, we'll go to the B team. And then I come. It, it's true. Let's just be honest, right? Let's just, let's just be honest. Okay. Also, I'm wondering if it's when it's the hard things, but we'll get to that yet. Okay. Uh, so we're in the midst of our uh, doubt series, looking at some difficult questions that come um, when people are wrestling with faith and what does that look like. And so we're just kind of tackling them one at a time. And today we're looking at church history, which will be fantastic. But before we get there, I, I just need to confess something to you, and that is that I don't like flying. Um, it doesn't quite seem related, but that's okay. Um, I, I don't know about you, but uh, the first time that I sat in a plane, you know, we're taxiing runway, um, and, and I'm, I'm kind of, you feel the bumps on the, on, on, the, on, the, on the runway, and then you see the wing go like, like it moves, like three feet by the end. And you're thinking, I'm, that is going to carry me? Like, no, 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 I, I, no, I, I don't, I think we should turn around. Because, like, I don't believe in this engineering thing. Like, you're going to get me going how many kilometers an hour, and we're just going to hope that we get into the sky before we hit that barrier at the end? Like, come on, I, I know how much aluminum, and, 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 and then, like, the, and then there's, like, jet fuel beside me here. I, like, no, no, no. Also, I've had a bad day at work. How do I know that the guy who checked to make sure everything was good is, is doing the right things? Like maybe his kid was up all night and he forgot to tighten that rivet. Maybe a tire is going to come off. Like I'm not into this, right? Like this, this just is not how this is going to go. And so every time I get onto a plane, I have to have like, like a conversation with myself. Like first, I'm just going to white knuckle it most of the time. That's just the way that I am. But, like, I have to have, like, my wife's voice playing in my head, being like, nobody, like, it's so rare that plane crashes happen. It's just so rare, right? So, like, I'm, I'm like, okay, okay, I got to look up stats. So, sure enough, it's, it's true that in 2010, only 942 people died in plane crashes. That's 942 too many in my mind, Right? I don't want to be in that list. But then, but, but then I look and I see, oh, wait, there were 27.8 million flights in 2010. Oh, well, that's not so bad. But still, I white-knuckle it when we're taken off. Just, you know, a little bit of my own, my own weakness. The challenge is is that a lot of us actually look at the church the way that I look at planes. You know, there's a lot of damage that's been done. And when there are crashes, they're, they're rather, rather fatal. They cause a lot of damage and wreckage, and there's a wake of disaster behind them. Uh, maybe I'll just 
empty the pew. Christopher Hitchens, the the late Christopher Hitchens, um, wrote a book called God is Not Great, and in it he wrote, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance, and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children. Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. And and, and isn't this true of the church in some way? There is an undeniable dark side to church history. Crusades, inquisitions, burnings, drownings, enslavings, imprisonings, lynchings, homophobia, and abuse are all a part of our past. And we have to ask the question, doesn't that history undermine the message of Christianity? And I think that's a fair question. So the challenge is, is that when we look in the mirror as a church, it gets uncomfortable. I, I don't know about you, but if, if I have to have a wa- ever have to watch a sermon that I've done or been on stage, it is the most uncomfortable thing. If you look at pictures of yourself, it gets to be, un- you notice all of the flaws and challenges and where, oh, I shouldn't have been wearing that, or man, I wish I was sitting a little bit different, or I, uh, you know, I should have had more makeup on or less makeup on or whatever. Like We're just so critical and it's uncomfortable. So I'm going to warn you that as we look at church history, it's going to be uncomfortable. But, 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 but we're going to look at it through the, through the lens of, of David. We're going to take a look at David and the sin in his life and then how God dealt with that and what we can learn from that and apply it then to, to the church. So if you would, you could turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, 1 through 7. I mean, where Nathan comes to confront David on his sin. But before we get there, we need kind of a little bit of a background on like who David was and how he got to where he was. Um, so so the, the Israel didn't have a king, and they really wanted a king. They looked at the nations around them and said, hey, we want that. And so we don't want God as our king. We want somebody in between us as our king. And so they had Saul, and Saul turned out to be a terrible king, just didn't represent God well, didn't represent the people well, did some terrible things. And so God called Samuel to go and find a king that would represent him to the people. And his words to Samuel were, don't, don't look at outward appearance. Don't look at how high he is or how strong he is or, or how, how, how good looking he is. No, no, no. What I want you to do is you're going to look at the heart because that's what matters to me. And so Samuel goes out to the house of Jesse and he finds the youngest son, David, who is in the field as a shepherd and anoints him as king. And it's said that David has, um, is a man after God's own heart. He reflects who God is and does what God would want him to do. And so David spends a lot of time kind of waiting for the kingship to come because Saul isn't giving it up. And, and, and there's this whole section of, of scripture kind of looking at that in relationship. And then, and then comes the point in time where David does become king and he starts to conquer the lands around him. And at one of these points... He sends out his troops to conquer some land, and he stays back in his palace. And in, 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 in his time there, he goes onto the roof, and he looks down 
on the city and he sees a, a beautiful woman bathing on the roof of her home. And, and instead of going, oh, I, you know, I'm just going to go over and I'll look over this side of the city. No, 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 no. David goes, wow, she's actually really beautiful. How about we get her to come into my home? And then, and then, and then he has an affair with her, commits adultery with her. And as is the case, well, she gets pregnant. And now David's in a bit of a bind. Right? Oh, okay, now what do I do? So it just turns out that her husband, Uriah, comes back to the, to the king. And, and he thinks, oh, you know what? I've got this plan. I'm going to let Uriah go home. Because he's been at war for a long time, you know what's going to happen. Right? Baby will come. And no one will be the wiser. But you know, Uriah is just this really like, stupidly loyal guy. And instead of going home and being reunited with his wife, he's like, no, 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 king. I am I'm devoted to you. David's like, you, that, uh, fine. So he sends a letter back with Uriah to the general. He says, look, you need to place Uriah at the front. So that when you go into battle, at the most, at the most challenging spot, he will die. And that's what happens. David thinks, yes, I've covered up my sin. Uriah's gone, and all is well. And then we run into Nathan, who is sent by God in 2 Samuel 12 to confront David on his sin. So let's read together 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Awesome text, hey? So, so, so here's the thing. We're going we're gonna to look at kind of four components to, the, to this text. The, the first is David's injustice. The second is the justice that is brought. The third is David's response. And then the fourth is God's restoration. So, so let's go through this together. And, and what we're going to see is that David as the king of Israel really does parallel, though, the, the church as the bride of Christ. So, Injustice. David sinned. 
horrendously. First, he broke the 10th commandment by coveting somebody else's wife. Then instead of leaving it there, he broke the 7th commandment by inviting her into his palace and sleeping with her. And then finally, he he broke the sixth commandment in having Uriah killed and all the while thinking that he was arrogant enough that he could hide it all from God and the people and, and just present this righteous front. The, the man after God's own heart sinned in this egregious manner. There is no question that in this moment, David is at a low point. This representative of God to the people, this king, this leader that's supposed to lead them in the ways of righteousness is falling apart. The reality, though, is that the church is really... No different. I mean, if if we look back at church history, what we can see are really, I would say, four main kinds of categories of blemishes on the church. The first being the Crusades. Now, (laughs) the, the, the Crusades are like span hundreds of years and are incredibly complicated and so I'm, I'm going to do injustice to kind of in the time that we have to kind of outlining it but let, let's you know let's let's see what happens so at, at the risk of oversimplifying the crusades were a military uh, expeditions made by europeans to recover holy lands from muslims in the 11th to 13th centuries it was born out of a geopolitical blend of church and state. It was not about the advancement of the kingdom of God. It was not about the conversion of souls to Christ. There may have been crosses on shields of the crusaders as they killed Muslims, who had recently invaded their lands. But it was religiously complicated, politically motivated, and it was disguised as some sort of Christendom that looked nothing like Christ. At the same time, we do need to recognize that uh, unlike popular myth, in many cases, the battles were fought defensively. This This was Muslims attacking Christians to protect Christians from invading forces or to reclaim land that the Muslims had already taken. So it's no wonder that the Crusades were called the Holy Wars. Secondly, though, we have the Inquisition in our past. The Spanish Inquisition was a tribunal It was actually an extension of the Papal Inquisition in the 15th century in Spain that sought to identify heretics and bring them to justice, sometimes by burning them at the stake. It is an ugly example 
of the dangerous mix of church and state. Political power uh, um, is not actually a part of Christendom. Christendom has always thrived as a subversive movement, but in the Inquisition, what we have is political power being used to root out opposition in the most brutal of ways. Thirdly, the witch trials. Now, it's popular to think that, um, that f- millions of these supposed witches were uh, rounded up and killed. Uh, Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, would kind of allude to that, and that's kind of popular opinion and kind of thrown out there as, oh, the church killed millions of witches. Um, Most scholars, though, would estimate that between 40,000 and 60,000 were killed altogether, 20% of those being men. That's 60,000 souls the church has on its conscience. The most famous of these was actually... uh, or at least for us in North America, would be the Salem Witch Trials, which uh, took place in the state of Massachusetts. Is that right? Did I say that right? I guess, right? (laughs) Okay, I don't know. That's what it's, okay, awesome. Um, It was, so it's popularly believed that thousands of witches were rounded up and killed. The, the, The truth of the matter is, is that it was actually under 25. Now, I, that can sound like, a, oh, don't worry about it. It was just under 25. That's, no, 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 no. There were 25 souls that were unjustly killed because of misuse of power. And finally, and probably most close to home, and it's, consequences and effects still are around today is the abuse that we see in the church. Most famously, the the Catholic Church has been embroiled in scandals involving child abuse by priests and the subsequent cover-up by the church. And instead of coming clean on the on, on the things that would happen, the church said, we'll just move that priest over to the next parish. And it would be so convenient if it stayed out there in the Catholic world. But the truth is, is that this kind of abuse is also in the Protestant church. And it, and it, and it reaches beyond children to the abuse of women or abuse of power. I mean, in the last decade or two decades, we could look back at North American church history and we can pull out prominent leaders that have abused their power and destroyed churches, destroyed the the name of Christ in their communities because of this abuse. 
Isn't looking in the mirror fun? The question, though, becomes, why is this possible? I mean, D- David is supposed to represent the, 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 the nation of Israel, and the church is supposed to represent Christ. And how is it possible that we can look at these two examples and we can see such brokenness in it? Well, David, as he was reflecting on the sin in his own life, on the, on the catastrophic failures that he had, he penned Psalm 51. And in verse 5, he, he talks about this. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, as he was wrestling through this idea of, look, like, when Samuel anointed me, he anointed me because I, I, I was a man after God's own heart. That's how people call me, and yet I, I'm so capable of all of this brokenness and all of this sin. How, how is it possible? And as he read scripture, he, he came to the conclusion that, look, like this sin indwells me from the beginning. That because of the fallenness of Adam and Eve, because of the sin that has entered this world, I'm so turned in on myself, I'm so crooked by myself that, that I, I just, I veer off the path so easily. And I'm broken from the beginning. And I mean, it, isn't that true in our lives too? I definitely know it's true in mine. I would love to say to you this week that I could hold open my week to you and that you would take the scriptures and be like, yep, Jason and Jesus are lockstep. But it's not true. The things my mind dwells on, the selfishness that exists in my heart, the covetousness I have towards others' success, the judgment I can so easily throw on people who are, who are struggling is a real challenge. And the thing is, is that that's true for us all. And it isn't something I've learned. It's something I've been born with. And I just have to look at my kids and watch them for a minute and go, yep, they're little sinners. (laughs) We giggle, but it's true. They're cute. They're super cute. That's how they get away with it. But like they they learn no and mine so fast, right? Those are the first two things. Nope. No. You need to eat that. No. I remember my youngest son, Beckett, when he was first learning to eat by himself, he had like a little bowl of chili there, and he picked up a handful of it, and he put it out like this. Oh, really? No, you won't. Really? Okay, it's time. Do not do that. Like deadpan. You're just looking straight at me. Next hand. Oh, we did that till the bowl was empty. He still does. No, 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 he's four. No, 
I've gotten that out of them. Now it's the next thing. But, but the reality is, is, that, is that sin so easily and just from so early on is in our lives and we're so crooked. And so it's no wonder that you put people like that in charge and they're going to make mistakes. Right? They're going to take the power that they've been given and they're going to veer the organization off its path. David had all of the power in the world. He could, he could do what he want, wanted, and he had the sanctioning of God with him, and yet he chose to disobey God and do whatever he wanted from his own heart. And those that ran the church allowed the own sin in their heart to mar it. But what we learn from David is that there is always justice. David was held accountable. You see, David thought he'd covered it up. The only people that could possibly know what happened were dead. Right? The general didn't know why it was that Uriah was supposed to be there. Right? Bathsheba would have been the only one who kind of would have known what happened, but that would have been shameful for her, so she's not going to necessarily say anything. And so, like, David's like, I've crossed my T's, I've dotted my I's, I'm free to live my life as I want. Except God sends Nathan to be like, no, 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 I know what you did, and I will not allow it to go unaccounted for. Nathan was sent by God to keep the king accountable. God does not leave his sin in the shadows. Nathan is here to draw David's attention to his own sin and show him how heinous his actions were. And in the way that Nathan does it, David cries out, this man should die. Oh, and he is so right because the consequences of sin towards a holy God is death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. See, David, what you have earned in your working out of sin is death. And God will not leave it unaccounted for. I don't know about you, but if I look back at my last week, that makes me quake. Think to myself, man, before I look at the, cha- at, the, at the sins of the leaders of the past, I ought to look at my own heart first. Because, man, if I'm crying out for justice from those who have poorly led the church in the past, then I should look for justice in my own life. And the hammer of justice is unrelenting. In Exodus 34, God says that I am, I am 
gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, but by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. Man, that's hard. To know that that judgment will come, that accountability will be had. But it also applies to the church. See, as we read through scripture, we see that God always holds his people accountable. Those who are called by his name, he, he, he holds them accountable. Whether they were Pharisees or Sadducees or kings or prophets, he holds them accountable. And in Revelation chapter 2, John has this vision. The apostle John has this vision of Jesus walking among these seven lampstands, which are supposed to represent these churches. And Jesus speaks to each one of these churches and points out where they're doing well. And he points out where they have failed terribly. And his message to them is change or I will hold you accountable. I will take the lampstand and I will remove it from my presence. I will bring judgment upon you. So justice will be had by God. Whether in the church or out of the church or in the church's history, God will bring justice. The wrongs and sins of the past will be paid for. Even the church does not escape the justice of God. But there's hope. Because David responds with repentance. Later on in this passage, in 2 Samuel 12, 13a, he says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, now this is revolutionary because David was king. He could have totally just said, yeah, Nathan, I'm sorry, you know but I'm taking you out too. I mean, I did it to Uriah. Why couldn't I do it to you? I'm king. Or he could have said, yeah, yeah, you don't know how hard it was. Like, have you ever been on a rooftop? Did you see how beautiful Bathsheba was? Is there any sin in your life, Nathan? Come on. Like, he could have justified his space. He could have seen where he was wrong. He could have used his power to to squash the situation. But instead, David's response was repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, Again, in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he's talking about God. And some of us might think, Ah, 
I don't know, I think I can list a few more people along the way. Right? Like, I'm pretty sure Uriah's not stoked. And Bathsheba's stuck where he is, where she is. Like, there's, there's more than just God here. But I think as, as, as David is wrestling through his sin, as David is wrestling through, what does that look like? That like, I was supposed to be a man after God's own heart and this sin just so easily entangles my heart and I veer off this path so easily. What, what he recognizes, not that he hadn't hurt others, not that he hadn't sinned against others, but primarily and firstly he had sinned against God. A commentator said this, with all the collateral damage to so many lives, how can David say this, that he had only sinned against God? The simple answer is that before, <coughs> before lifting a hand against a fellow human being, we first shake our fist in God's face. If love of God precedes and enables love of neighbor, defiance of God proceeds and enables abuse of neighbor. God was the most significant one sinned against. David was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God's. It is actually this denial of God's beauty that causes the injustices throughout church history. Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. And yet we brandished military weapons with his cross on it to take back lands in geopolitical battles. God forgave us when we were yet enemies. And yet we used the power we had to root out our enemies and burn them at the stake. God came to seek and save the lost, to free the demon oppressed, yet the church found those oppressed and killed them. Jesus came and said, let the children come to me. And we betrayed them and abused them. The church's response must be repentance. Because these blemishes on church history are not a reflection of Christ. And we should fall to our knees and be crushed in our souls and repent and say, first, God, we have so egregiously sinned against you and then seek to repair where we can. But some of us would say, yeah, 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 but still, 
These crashes are too big. The church cannot be trusted. I think I'm going to get off. That wing is moving just too much. I don't trust the pilot at the helm. I, I guess my, my question to you, though, is what is the alternative? You see, Christopher Hitchens, in his critique of religion as a whole, and the, and the church more specifically, advocates for atheism as a way forward. He, he, he kind of says, look, let's, let's just do away with religious thought and let's embrace this idea that, that there is no God and, and that we should just work with one another and embrace naturalism and the theories of evolution and just say, okay, this is, this is our world. Let's just live it as best we can. The problem, though, is that the most violent dehumanizing regimes in history have taken place in the last 100 years and have been atheistic, not religious. Stalin in Russia, Mao in China, Rouge in Cambodia, and Hitler in Germany, driven by Marxist, communist, atheistic philosophies, and a rejection of God at the center of their systems of belief. Rouge killed estimated two million people. Hitler, 6 million. Stalin, 20 million. Mao, 50 to 70 million people. In 500 years of church history, so-called Christians have killed 200,000 to 250,000 people. In the last 100 years, atheistic regimes have killed 80 to 100 million people. Is that really the answer? To do away with God and try it on our own? Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, said, history has proven that adopting a philosophy wherein the answer to violence and oppression is less religious is a failure. You want to go Hitchens route? You can look at the stats and say that that is failure. Or, or you can look at the church like G.K. Chesterton did. He was a, a Christian philosopher and, and his quote is, I do believe in Christianity and my impression that is that a system must be divine, which has survived so much insane mismanagement. I mean, there must be something to it, because you can just see all of the insanity, and yet it survives. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because we have a God of redemption, See, th this is the hope of the story of David. It's the hope of the church. It's the hope of our own personal lives is that God redeems broken things. See, David should have been crushed. 
And yet a few chapters later, despite his sin, despite the difficulty that he had, despite the fact that God had to come and confront him of that, and he repented of it, God says, your throne will last forever. I will make your throne last forever. And through the line of David comes Jesus, who lives a perfect life, who shows us an example of what it is to actually follow, follow the words of God and be faithful to his commands and his truth, and then unjustly dies on a cross for us. See, because of God's faithfulness, the line of David continues, and, and, and David is exonerated as this as this as this king above kings. Why? Because, because, because God is faithful, not because he was. But the reality is the same for the church. You see, sometimes we get so caught up in looking at the difficulties of church history that we forget to look at the beauty of church history. Rebecca McLaughlin, in, uh, in her book, Confronting Christianity, said, said this, Christians were the first to found hospitals and for their moral failures have done more in global terms to alleviate suffering than any other movement. Look, the church has a lot of blemish. But let me just take the last little bit here to show it is how, how it is that God is using that and restoring that to bring blessing and honor and healing to the world. Look, look, look the, the, the church is primarily responsible for sanctity of human life, hospitals, women's rights, abolition of slavery, liberty and justice, education, science, music, and art. That's quite a list. Look, the sanctity of human life. Christians elevated the sanctity of human life above anybody else. In ancient Rome and Greece and, and other societies, human life was cheap and expendable. We had gladiator fights and infanticide and the abandonment of children and the, and the abuse of women just, just because life didn't matter. But the early church look, looked at the word of God and said, look, God made man and woman in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And if they have an imprint of the image of God on them, then they must be valuable. And they read David's words and where he said, wait, oh, okay, in, in my mother's womb, you knit me together. That means that babies have infinite value because they are purposed by God. And so, and so they fought against infanticide. They fought against and opposed gladiator fights. They would take in children that were abandoned. And because of that, still in most Western societies, abandoning a child or killing an infant is wrong. Christians were the first to start hospitals. See, when, when they heard Jesus say, 
I was sick and you cared for me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you gave me clothes. They took that seriously. They said, if we're supposed to represent Jesus, we should start places where sick people can come and find healing. Prior to Christianity, women were practically slaves, having little little or no freedom and dignity. In the church, women were baptized, taught, and served communion right alongside men. Adultery was no longer blamed on women, but a man who committed adultery was as guilty. It was Christianity that permitted a woman to reject a male suitor. Amen? And inherit property. See, they they looked at the image of God in women and said, no, 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 the way that society is wrong. We have to correct that. Slavery in some form was virtually universal in every human culture over the centuries. It was Christians who first came to the conclusion that it was wrong, and it was Christians who began to work for abolition because they saw it as violating the will of God. William Wilberforce in Great Britain and John Woolman in the U.S., among many others, devoted their entire lives to ending slavery in Jesus' name. Liberty and justice, the civil rights movement, Uh, most famous activist was a preacher of the gospel, Martin Luther King Jr. He is considered by many to be the greatest champion of justice in our era, and he knew the antidote to racism wasn't less Christianity, but a deeper and truer one. Man, if you know the gospel, there's no way that you can see this injustice There's just no way was his message. Universities grew out of churches, medieval monasteries. Oxford and Cambridge in the UK and Harvard, Yale and Princeton in the US all began as seminaries or were founded by Christian leaders. It is because of the belief in the dignity and worth of all human beings that Christians have advocated for all children around the globe to receive an education historically, and today. Science. John Lennox wrote a book called Can Science Explain Everything? Uh, And he was a professor of mathematics and philosophy at Oxford. Uh, And um, he he wrote this in in his book. It's It's a longer quote. He said, by by a a curious train of events, I found myself on a rickety Russian plane. (laughs) That scares me. Uh, Landing at the city of something in Siberia. I I just can't say it, so I'm not even going to try. To spend a month lecturing and researching at the university there. However... Word, uh, the technological infrastructure was in those days of communist rule. Some of the Russians, Russian mathematicians were world leaders. And it was a privilege to meet with them and spend time with the faculty and students. But they were utterly perplexed by one thing. 
that I believe in God. I was eventually invited by the rector of the university to explain in a lecture why I, as a mathematician, believed in God. Apparently, it was the first lecture of its kind uh, to be held there in 75 years. The auditorium was full to capacity with many professors as well as students. In my presentation, among other things, I spoke about the history of modern science and related how its great pioneers, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, and Clerk Maxwell were all, were all firm and convinced believers in God. When I said this, I detected anger in the audience. And not liking people being angry in my lectures, I paused to ask them why they were so annoyed. A professor in the front row said, we are angry because this is the first time we have heard that these famous scientists on whose shoulders we stand were believers in God. Why were we never told this? Isn't it obvious, I replied, that this historical fact did not fit with the scientific atheism that you were taught? I went on to point out that the connection between the biblical worldview and the rise of modern science was well recognized. C.S. Lewis sums it up well when he says, men became scientists because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. Peter Harrison reaches the same basic conclusion Far from hindering the rise of modern science, faith in God was one of the motors that drove it. I, Lennox, therefore regarded as a privilege and an honor, not an embarrassment, to be both a scientist and a Christian. Modern science came to be out of the belief that an intelligent designer's handiwork was there waiting to be explored. Faith bore science. There is no conflict. Music came out of Catholic monks who developed the first form of modern Westic musical notation. And art, several historians credit the Catholic Church for what they consider to be the brilliance and magnificence of Western art. All of this was born out of the church. And this should bring us great hope. Because we all kind of sit here looking like the church, not like Jesus. We all can look at our past and we can see all of this darkness in it and all of the mistakes that we've made and all of the difficulties, even just this last week, the things that we've done. And yet God is faithful to take all of that garbage and to make it something beautiful to change the world because he is faithful, not because I am, but because he is. And that should bring us such encouragement and that we can face the difficulties of the church past and say, yeah, we need to repent for all of that, but look at what God is doing. Look at what God has done. 
I think when we, when we look at this question, when we start to think about, does, does the injustice of church history actually cause us to undermine the gospel? No, no, no. It actually, it actually causes us to bolster the gospel. Because the gospel says you are broken and I came to save you and I saved you and I will make you more like me. And that's exactly what we see when we look in church history. It's that God takes broken people and does incredible things. Andrew Wilson, as, as he kind of struggled with this, he, he and his kids were, were uh, roasting some marshmallows in their backyard, and he's just staring into the fire. Have you ever done that, where you're like, you just kind of get to a campfire and just zone in here, right? Like, it's, it's actually a really therapeutic kind of thing. But in, in this particular moment, he's, he was just thinking to himself, I cannot believe that we burned people in that. Like, how is that possible? And as, as he wrestled through this, he, he wrote a an article on it, and, and, and he kind of lands here. He said, our, our low points expose the fallibility of our heroes and prompt us to thank God that he builds and continues to build his church through broken people. At one level, the fact that Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Second Crusade and Jonathan Edwards owned slaves and Martin Luther denigrated Jews undermines the gospel they preach so eloquently. At another level, it vindicates it. All at once, they were princes and paupers, priests and beggars, sinners and saints. So are we. An honest reading of church history also makes the Bible's uh, history far more applicable. There is no hint of whitewash of Israel in Genesis or Judges, 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles. The stories of the early church is full of great achievements alongside rifts, squabbles, betrayals, and disappointments. Scripture paints God's people as a mighty yet flawed community. Anointed by God, yet afflicted by sin. When we find that our ancestors in church history have been similar, it should not surprise us. So, does the injustice of church history undermine the gospel? No. What it shows is that God used broken people to bring out beautiful things. And that doesn't just stay in the theoretical institutional world. That stays, that comes right down to me, Jason, and you. God takes broken things and makes them beautiful. And looking at church history should give us hope that he can take that kind of brokenness and bring out that kind of beauty. What could he do with you? Let's pray. Oh God, I'm so grateful that you don't forsake us in our brokenness, but that you come near 
and that you put the sin in front of our face and ask us to repent and then bring grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy and take this dark, shriveled up soul and make it something beautiful. God, thank you that you don't whitewash that in your word and that you don't whitewash that in, in our church history, but God, that you're taking this broken bride and you're making it beautiful. And God, I pray that when people look in to what you're doing, that they see you, your power and your grace and your mercy and your justice, Father. God, would we as the church be repentant of where we have so egregiously misrepresented you and listened to the world and listened to the sin in our own hearts and used the power that we've had to manipulate people. Oh God, would you find us repentant? God, would you bring people back? Would you, would you reconcile us to each other? And would you be glorified moving forward in your church? In Jesus' name, amen.